why don't we lead into the episode here? As always for our listeners, this is Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen. I'm Zachary Kellyan, author, short story writer, drinking buddy to Dr. Gordon McAllen. I think podcaster is my only good title at this point. It's what your doctorate is in. Yes. So we're going to be talking mostly this episode about the chapter Land. And I have really mixed feelings about about this chapter. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's only three chapters in the book. Right. And the first chapter uh, is mostly exposition, although it's not entirely exposition, as we talked about previously, that actually quite a bit happens um, that's kind of woven in with the story. But I have difficulty with the second chapter, Land, because I don't feel like I, I personally connect with it. It is a very misogynistic view of war and wartime coping mechanisms, if you will. We explore the coping mechanisms of so many of the men, and so many of those are wrapped up in the ways in which they deal with the women in their lives. Now, there's a lot from a relationship standpoint that, that can resonate here with me, but the, the misogyny of it is something that doesn't connect with me. You know, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think one of the things that we talked a lot about when we decided to embark on Literary Guys was we're going to be tackling books that were written at a different time with different sensibilities, and how would we in 2020 address those sensibilities? So I think it's very good that you're pointing this out. Yes, on the surface, uh, Land, the, the second and middle chapter of this book, has uh, a lot of misogyny, a lot of boys-will-be-boys type of behavior. I think um, while some of it might be uncomfortable, certainly as we learn about what women's place or lack thereof might be in this new Japan that is occupied by American forces might be, and the agency that a wife of an officer might have in terms of dictating the father of her children's future um, and his prioritization of the military and a cause over her, I think you're absolutely right. And and there's there's some things that are said in this and some racial ideas that are brought up that are, are very uncomfortable to us in 2020, but I don't think are misrepresentative of the time. I think no, he's, not at all. he's writing about a time. And I do think to Michener's credit, we are not meant to revel in the misogyny, the, the drunken revelry, the fighting, the whoring around that is described in this chapter. I think we're meant to feel deeply sad by it because we are seeing all the men who did these daring feats of heroism, these amazing feats of prowess, these amazing leadership abilities that those of us in the modern world can really only dream of ever achieving. We're now seeing them untethered. We're seeing them without purpose. And I think rather than, you know, exploring the fun of a shore leave like your typical war novel might be. This is a deeply sad chapter that really shows that these men outside of war don't feel like they have a lot of purpose and they're not able to talk about their war experiences with each other, with those at home, the people who in America have already this time forgotten about the Korean War even as it's going on. These are men who are driven by a lot of demons and while they are creating havoc and inserting their masculinity and their toxic masculinity and their white male privilege on this Japanese society, uh, they're doing so from a very sad and dark place. And I don't think Michener or the reader is meant to celebrate it. I don't believe that we're intended to celebrate what we're seeing. Uh, but I'm going to add to what you just said sure. to be more specific, which is not only is this 
uncomfortable from a modern mores view of what's going on in the book, but it's a striking reminder, at least to me, of how incredibly heteronormative what we're seeing happen in these scenes is. Like, this is... Uh, okay. Th- 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 this is actually, for me, kind of uncomfortable to read because everything that's going on is about this uncomfortable relationship that exists between wartime men and women. And and I, I think it, in this case, I'm going to use those pronouns because sure. they're very, very much about what we're seeing here. And, and they are of the time. I'm going to go one step further to say that not only was the behavior that we saw here tolerated, but I think amongst the men, this idea of treating women as sexual objects and also treating them poorly was celebrated. I would agree. I think that was a reality of the time. I think uh, that's still a reality in the modern military. I mean, don't ask, don't tell. It was only very recently appealed, and it's still something that the modern military is struggling to adapt with. Just to remind our listeners, you identify as a gay man. That is true. Uh, I identify as a straight man. We've been friends for 20-plus years now. I think it's safe to say, uh, if you believe in the Kinsey scale of sexuality, we're both on opposite extremes. Yes. Uh, so often, uh, one of the great parts of our friendship is how we can challenge one another, because my view of the world is very heteronormative. Um, your view of the world would be the opposite of that. And so I think it's it's fascinating to hear your take on that. And I, w- I would love to dig into that a little bit, because that particular part of me, the misogyny bothered me, the, the lack of agency that women had in this bothered me. But when you're talking about kind of the heteronormative uh, boys club that you saw in this, I didn't pick up on that, and this is a really good topic to dive into. Part of it comes down to the the feeling that any gay character who would have existed in this novel, and, and let's face it, like they wouldn't have been out in most cases, no. uh, given that how they would have been treated by the military at the time, but also they would have been forced to live in this world. Like if they went went to shore and didn't come back with a story about, you know, some daring conquest or about, you know, having been to a club. Like, it just, it it feels really uncomfortable. And and it it forces people to not be themselves and to play a role. Sure. Just in order to be able to exist. Because let's face it, when you're going out there and you're facing death every day, like these characters are, like, you're going to push that down. You are not going to deal with those problems because you have much bigger things to deal with and those things are supposed to be giving you release and that we know in this chapter are brought up as like the the very few things that the military can dangle in front of these men in order to keep them loyal and when that has no value to it and it actually cheapens you as a person like that's really uncomfortable um, this is a very interesting, I'm so glad we're having this discussion because it's insightful to me to kind of learn your perspective on it. And I also want to kind of turn this conversation on its head and get you to rethink about a character that you maybe didn't relate all that well to uh, last week when we were talking about this novel. So when we get to, um, uh, is it Yok- Yokosuma? I know they're sponsoring this episode, so I should probably know the well, name uh, of the Actually, port. maybe this is a good time to, uh, to read the copy. That's true. Here we go. Uh, This episode is sponsored by the Yokosuka Board of Tourism, known as one of the greatest liberty ports in the world, has more variety than Marseille, more beauty than Valparaiso, 
Is that Indiana, or is there another Valparaiso that I'm not aware of? Um, let's go with Indiana. We can cut this out, and uh, we'll just go with the script that I'm given. Uh, its prices are cheaper than New York's. Its drinks better than Lisbon's. And there's more pretty girls than in Tahiti. The Yokosuka Board of Tourism, known to you boys at sea as the Yukoska. It's the Yokosuka Liberty Ports. The All this luxury and grandeur that was enjoyed by Japanese for generations, now solely at the discretion of white military officers? That's Yes, that's exactly what I remember. Ah, so it, do, it does sound pretty good, I'm not going to lie. It, it's up there with that, that bar that's in Tokyo that has a band that plays on an elevator that just goes up and down. And a mechanical airplane drink cart driven, or I guess flown by a half-nude woman. I don't remember that part. Uh, that's the part that I remember most from that club. So we read a very different section of the book. I, I was more interested in what kind of music they were playing. <laughs> so that, thank you very much, as, as always, for the sponsorship. I, um, I found it very interesting as a modern reader to learn uh, men like Mike and Nestor have essentially fiancés. These women in this Japanese port that they probably don't even have a lot of language fluency with, that they have proposed to, they have made promises of marriage to, and it seemed almost like that's what you do. You have that woman in port. It's expected. You know, Brubaker doesn't because he has a wife. The Admiral does it because he has a very sad wife mourning the loss of their two sons back home somewhere in America. Uh, Beer Barrel, who is a character who you said previously you did not relate to, does not have a woman in this port. In fact, he never leaves the hotel bar. Is that a man who maybe isn't gay, but probably doesn't ascribe to the same level of kind of flagrant women as property, women as status symbols in the military type of ideal? So you may be right. I'm not going to write off that as a possibility. That may be one of the demons that he has. But when we think about Mike and we think about Nestor, that... How much of that was for show? Sure. There's a lot of gay men in this world who not only have had girlfriends, some of which have been fake, but some of which are, are real, and some of whom they are married and they have kids with. And Wait, that girlfriend that you had that entire time in high school in Canada? She was real, though. Oh, yeah, and, and, okay. and even more real that the borders closed. Seriously, just, uh, just can't go there. The reality is is that there were so many deeply sad men yeah. who who felt the need to to conform to that world. And and don't get me wrong, like this wasn't just the military, this was society in general, but it seems like it was further amplified in that wartime environment. Like and part of it is again getting back to this notion of what is your joy? What is your stress release? The third chapter of this book deals deeply with how one relieves the stress of a yeah. of a wartime environment. And, and yet, this idea of having a beautiful hotel to go to, of uh, it being morally acceptable to, you know, to have uh, affairs with women at port, this was supposed to be a release. And can you imagine being there for an extended period of time and that that is a toxic thing to you? Absolutely. And it, it, it is one of the driving 
narrative points of the land chapter. You know, we are we are just settling into this officers' club. We're meeting Brubaker's wife for the first time, Nancy, who's flown half a continent away, or half a world away, excuse me, to to meet up with him with his daughters in tow. And uh, the admiral's there. You know, it, it, it seems like it's going to be a very domestic kind of pedantic moment. But then, of course, Mike and Nestor go, and specifically Mike finds out that his quote-unquote fiancé has already promised marriage to another man on another carrier. And they essentially start uh, World War III in Tokyo. These two men, according to the, the book itself, taking on half of Tokyo with just their fists. And um, it is the main driving thrust of it. Are these men fighting everyone tooth and nail because they're heartbroken over a girl? Or was it an affront to their masculinity that another man from another ship specifically was able to to win this prize, to win this trophy? I will say one thing, and this is uh, from the chapter land. The captain of the Savo witnessed this disgraceful riot and determined on the spot to get rid of Mike Forney. But Admiral Tarrant, surveying the brawl from the flag bridge, thought, I'd hate to see the day when men were afraid to mix it up for pretty girls. <laughs> I, ha- I have forgotten about that line, and that is a very interesting insight into the Admiral. Does the Admiral a little bit, do you think, does he feed off of this... Um, heightened masculinity on its edge? Does he find that men mixing it up for pretty girls brings a certain edge and chaotic violence to wartime that he needs to see from his crew? I think it brings distraction. Mm. In many ways, what we see, and and we're foreshadowing now into the third chapter of the book, Right. but it's the distraction that's missing. The the men who, who sit and think and dwell over the things they cannot control are the ones who drive themselves mad. Very interesting. Very interesting take. You know, one of the things that interested me so much about land is it's set up in the first conversation that Brubaker and Tarrant have um, that his wife is going to be meeting up with him in Tokyo at this um, kind of port of leave that they have. And we're, we're led to understand that this is very unorthodox, and if not almost suspicious for the military, that Brubaker's wife was able to swing this. We learned that Brubaker had nothing to do with it. He just has a very loving wife who was able to use some political connections to get over there because she misses her husband dearly. And he indeed misses her and, and the kids. Um, and so I think I kind of felt like this chapter was going to be, like I said, this domestic domicile um, interaction where we get to see specifically Brubaker as the man that he saw himself. He's a volunteer sailor. He's a volunteer pilot. He is not a man who who um, who is a career military guy. He was taken from his law practice, I believe, in Colorado, um, feels very out of place in the command structure and the masculinity, toxic masculinity of the military, if you will. Uh, he is not your typical aviator, pilot, soldier. And so I was looking forward to seeing that other side of his character. But that's not actually what we get because very early on, he is called in, uh, I believe, several hours away to Tokyo to bail out Mike Fortnoy from jail after getting into this huge fight. Mike, of course, being the one who saved him in this daring helicopter rescue we saw uh, last week and we talked about. Now he's, he's leaving his wife, who has flown half a world away, leaving his kids, who might never see him again, to spend about half of his leave trying to bail this man out of jail. His wife doesn't understand it, and the admiral sits her down, and 
rather than kind of talk as one would expect about the bonds of men and you know what he does touch upon what Brubaker owes Mike in terms of he saved his life but to speak to your concerns and my concerns about the the misogyny that we see and the role of women in wartime at least according to this version of the Korean War uh, the Admiral has this to say he's talking to Nancy Brubaker's wife and he says in 1942 I had a daughter as sweet as you she was my daughter-in-law really Then my son was killed at Midway, trying to torpedo a Jap carrier. She never recovered. For a while, she tried to make love with every man in uniform. Thought he might die one day. Then she grew to loathe herself and attempted suicide. What she's doing now, or where she is, I don't know. But once, she was my daughter. The Admiral, I believe, is probably sharing a very true story, one very personal to him. But to address Nancy's concern of why her husband just ditched out on her uh, to support another man, he basically says, you need to be ready for this. You need to be ready for what war does to men. You need to be ready for the sacrifices that your husband will always make above you and family, because that's, at least in terms of his cipher of masculinity, that's what men do. And if you're not prepared for that, you might as well turn yourself out and become a whore, because that's what this other woman did. And... To me, the language in that is very shocking, even for this novel. It's, it's a very chaste novel in terms of its language, and it doesn't really address sex or anything like that. Uh, it's a very blunt, very forceful, very offensive thing that the Admiral says. But also, Nancy Brubaker takes a step back and actually kind of reflects on it a little bit. You touched on this idea of the trip to Tokyo in yeah. order to, to bail out his friend, his, his comrade. And... That story, to me, is the singular reason, above all others, why I do not believe that the title of this, or the the, the subtitle of this book, Mm -hmm. A Story of Individual Heroism, uh, makes any sense at all. Because I don't think it is. No. I think it's about these characters who represent what is possible when they work together. They are all flawed. They are all unique. They are all contributing in their own way and yet they're not useful as a group the admiral he needs his troops the keg needs to inspire that brubaker needs to you know be a hero in his own right but he can't fight the war alone no so i i I think that this is actually a story where you could remove the names you could remove the name of the war you could change the locales and this is a story about, and now I am going to bring this back to what I think is actually the heart of the masculinity of this book, which is that sense of, and I'm, I'm not going to use this in a gendered sense, I'm just going to say it as, uh, as a term, which is brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe brotherhood transcends gender, and yet it is conflated with masculinity. I mean, obviously, given the name the word itself it conflates those two ideas. But that's what this is really about. This right. isn't about individuals. This is about a group of individuals who achieve something and achieve quite a bit, actually, by the end of this book. But individually, they are very flawed. Yeah, and I think it's, that's a really important point, right? It is, it is about that camaraderie, that wartime camaraderie that throughout history has made men um, excel 
in feats of courage far beyond what, what you and I will probably ever see in our lifetime. Um, I think that is an inspiring thing to say. You know, part of embarking on this podcast, we recognize we're going to have to deal with a lot of challenging, outdated modalities of masculinity. And you and I are, are friends in part because we've always talked about toxic masculinity. We've confronted it in each other at times. And I think it's important for every man on this earth to do that. Um, were these men doing that? No, they had a different focus. But I also think in 2020, it's important to remember that America, at least, has always asked its men to go to war. Only very recently were women even allowed in the military, and even though they can serve in almost every capacity, to my knowledge, in the current military, they're still not drafted. You know, you and I still had to sign up for the draft. Men are still expected to be the ones to make that type of a sacrifice. I don't think any of these men, including the Admiral, are ready for that psychologically. They are all suffering a great expense to their soul, to their character, to their mental health in what they're doing. But they're rising to the occasion, and they're doing it not as individuals, but as a group. And that's the brotherhood that you're talking about. And yeah. I think you would see that in today's military with, with female soldiers and male soldiers, I am sure. But a, a great thing about the story of men in literature, in society, is that even the most common of men have risen to great heights because they have been supported by their brothers on the battlefield. And that's something that I think Michener does in, in such an elegant way that I have rarely seen done in a war novel. I couldn't agree more with the assessment. And I think even if we want to take this beyond masculinity and you know, this notion of brotherhood, uh, men and women, like y you can just go on YouTube and, and watch videos of of soldiers reunited with their their canine like oh, bomb detecting man. dogs yeah and and you can see a brotherhood that isn't about anything other than the challenge of serving together right and to protect one another and i think that that speaks in a, a way that you know it, it almost transcends you know, uh, what's easily expressed in words. Yeah, and I don't think either of us believes this is something exclusive to men, exclusive to masculinity. But historically, it has been because historically men are the ones who go to war. And so it's something that we've seen more. We've been taught more as men based on our fathers, our grandfather's experience in their wars. Uh, it's become a very significant part of how we define ourselves as men, that sense of brotherhood, that sense of, of community, that... You know, you and I, very different people, but we're, we're, we're going through the same journey of life. And I think because we trust one another, because we've known each other for so long, that's all it takes. It does, we don't have to have anything in common other than knowing we have a similar moral compass and we have a similar direction in which we're headed. And we're both here to support one another. And that's what makes male friendship so great. And I think we owe that to our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, because they probably learned that in part in the military. And we've been able to transcribe that into our very peaceful, very prosperous lives that we owe men in this book uh, everything. Yeah. I, I think that's well said. I, I will say that in the more misogynistic world in which this book exists, though, that it's not just about the brotherhood amongst the characters, but it's also about how they define themselves against the rest of the world. If I can read a, a passage here... Uh, that, that speaks to that point. Admiral Tarrant laughed at the nonsense. 
Since his big operation two years ago, he drank only coffee, but he often growled, just because I'm a reformed drunk, no reason why I should deny pleasure to others. He poured himself some inky black coffee and looked into the gardens, where he saw Harry Brubaker's wonderfully lovely wife and her two daughters, and they reminded him of what wars were all about. You don't fight to protect warships or old men. Like the book says, you fight to save your civilization. And so often it seems that civilization is composed mainly of things women and children want. Wow. So I, I think there is still a fair amount of, of masculinity, of, of that more traditional, more toxic view of the world that we're seeing there. But it isn't set out of spite, which I think is interesting. Right. He, he's come to this, this realization that he doesn't need to be drunk, sitting in a bar at 3 a.m., like, telling these stories. No, he's perfectly sober. He's, this is just what he's come to terms with. So we're glossing over uh, one of the more interesting parts of the land excursion. Of course, there are these multiple fistfights in Tokyo and at Dry Dock, and there are, um, you know, lots of uh, powerful, drunken, or caffeine-fueled soliloquies about why men do what they do. But there's also a very strange scene in the bathhouse where Brubaker, his wife, and kids are naked in a pool, and a Japanese family comes in, and they're naked in a pool. And... um, We'll talk about this next week when we talk about uh, the ending of the novel. So I didn't understand its purpose at this time uh, in, in the novel. I just found it a very strange departure. Now, of course, I understand the greater meaning behind it, but um, it's so strange. It's just so strange. I didn't really resonate with that scene, but it does seem like it may be a bit of classic imagery of, of a common baptism. Oh, interesting. I do know in the film adaptation, which was, again, just a year after this came out, um, Michener was having a, a banner year. His, uh, his first novel, um, Tales of the South Pacific, had just gotten optioned by Rodgers and Hammerstein for a Broadway musical. And then the second novel, Bridges of Toko Ri, was turned into a blockbuster film. It is one of the first cases in a major Hollywood film. This is post-Hayes Code or post 1930s, 1940s censorship in Hollywood, chaste censorship, I guess you would say, where Grace Kelly, who plays Nancy Brubaker, uh, appears partially naked in this scene. And it um, was one of the first movies that was considered for adults only when it was released. Just a little interesting side note. And probably a good place to wrap up this episode. I like wrapping every episode up with talking about Grace Kelly's potential nude scenes, whether they exist or not. <laughs> oh wait, wait, was that misogynistic? I don't, I don't remember anymore. We've dived too deeply into the world of the Korean War and these men. Indeed. Well, thank you all for listening. As always, I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen, and I'm Zachary Kellyan. Thanks to the Stardust Lounge and the wonderful and may I say incredibly sober tonight, Edgar Bergamot. I feel like he's been making more mistakes, actually. Really? Oh, but that might be because he's sober. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. Signing off, as always, we are Literary Guys.